This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 212. Hey there, folks. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I bring you a piece of my fresh new fiction and share my successes and struggles as a writing professional. More about that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the first part of a new science fiction story, The Nearness of You. I started writing this story in June of 2016. I worked on it for about a month, got a little over 5,000 words written, but then lost confidence in the direction of the story, and I set it aside. I returned to the story in March of 2019, and finished it in 11 days, for a total of about 12,000 words. This is different from a lot of other sci-fi I've written, because it's a near-future piece, set in a world that is still similar enough to our own to be recognizable. I was particularly interested in exploring some trends that we're already in the midst of right now, things like autonomous vehicles, augmented reality, and telepresence. I wanted to explore how these trends might change as they advance, and how they might change us and how we cope with the world around us. I hope you enjoy it. The Nearness of You Written and read by Chris Laster Part 1 My husband's alarm goes off at a quarter to six. It manifests as a set of wind chimes that gradually become louder, and a pulsing light that ripples around the room, even with his eyes closed. I watch him grumble and turn over, gesturing vaguely in an approximation of the snooze command. His augmented reality implants don't recognize the motion until his third try. The chimes fall silent. I move closer to his ear. Dad, it's time to get up, love. He groans. Let me sleep, Jill. I was upgrading until 12.30. I know, dear. I was there. And I would happily make you breakfast and pack your lunch for you if I still could, but... He grunts, waving his hand again in acknowledgement of my disability. After a moment, he takes a deep breath, sits up, and stumbles his way to the bathroom. As soon as he leaves the room, my perspective shifts. Suddenly, I am standing in the bathtub, watching as Tad sheds his clothes and turns on the shower. The water falls over and around me, to no effect. My orange and yellow sundress does not cling to my skin. The curls of my Titian hair do not fall limp with the weight of moisture. I wish they would. I have almost forgotten what it feels like. But these simple pleasures are in the past now. Three years and more. 
Instead, I watch as my beloved buries his head under the shower. I watch the water sluice down his back and imagine following it with my hands. I see him cover himself in lather and remember how it felt when our soap-slick skin rubbed together. It is perversely cruel. I know the temperature of his skin to a hundredth of a degree, but I cannot reach out and feel the warmth of his flesh against mine. So instead I look and imagine and remember. He's more engaged on the drive to the school. After programming the destination in the car's computer and double-checking the route on the head-up display, he presses the go button and turns his chair around to face the rear table. I sit across from him in the back seat and look down at his tablet. It has a direct link to his AR implants, which makes it one of the few objects I can actually interact with. I call up his lesson plans for the day and start looking them over. Ooh, intro to genetics, I say, grinning. That should be fun. Are you doing the mouse lab this year? Not with the seventh graders. I had too many problems with squeamish kids last year. And parents, if I remember right, I say. And parents, he agrees. We'll do some basic mods on pea plants to get started, sort of a neo-Mendelian approach. Maybe move up to Drosophila for the end-of-semester projects, if the kids are interested. The car chimes a quiet warning, then slows down as it enters a turn. A moment later, it breaks hard as a squirrel darts across the road in front of us. Panic surges. Reflexively, I find myself looking over both shoulders, then extending my awareness to the cameras on the outside of the car. Once I've verified that we're clear on all sides, I can finally relax. The car hums into motion again, and I turn my attention back to Tad. He's noticed my episode. His eyes gleam with an old pain. He looks down at my hands, on the table across from his, but he doesn't try to reach out and touch them. He finally managed to break himself of the habit a little more than a year ago. It's all right, Jill, he says softly. The car's not going to hurt me. I look away. Somehow, after three years, this is the part we still keep repeating. I would have preferred the hand-holding. Yeah, well, I didn't think it was going to hurt me, either. That was a million-to-one chance. More, even. It's not going to happen again. He taps the corner of the tablet. Come on, help me finish going over this. I need another pair of eyes to see where they might get lost. I don't take a deep breath and let it out, but I think about it. And for me, that's basically the same thing. With an effort of will, I take my eyes off the road and turn back to the lesson plan. We approach the school, and I can feel it when the network connects to Tad's implants. It comes to me like a great expansion of my senses. Nearly all the rooms are wired for telepresence, so instead of the fourteen perspective points available at our house, suddenly I have access to hundreds. The uplinks to the global net are faster here, too. If I wanted to, I could send myself to Timbuktu and back again. For now, though, I stay close to Tad. He can use the help, and I have reasons of my own for being here. 
The children are raucous, but generally good-natured during the genetics lab. I spot a group of boys who are preparing to turn their peas into blowgun ammunition, and I point them out to Tad before they can cause any trouble. He confiscates the pea shooter, and gently but firmly puts them back on task. Mr. Phillips has eyes in the back of his head, one boy mutters. I smile and wink at him, though of course he can't see it. He's not old enough to get his AR implants yet, and in any case, my instance is set to private. Unless I project somewhere else, or Tad adjusts the settings, I'm a ghost that only he can see. Tad takes his lunch at his desk, making minor tweaks to the lesson plan in between bites of his sandwich. You should go down to the quad, I say, kicking my heels on the edge of his desk. You spend all your time in this classroom. Go get some sunshine. He smiles tolerantly. You're the sun worshipper in this duo. I'm a troglodyte, remember? He splays his hands in front of his face and hisses, like Count Orlok suddenly confronted with the sun at the end of Nosferatu. I laugh, because it makes him feel better when I do that. Okay, fine. Why not go down to the teacher's lounge? You could at least have someone to talk to. There's nobody down there that I want to talk to more than you. He's still smiling, but it's drained out of his eyes now. There's a wariness there, and a weariness as well. Oh, my love, you're only thirty-three. You're not allowed to feel so old. But I keep my thoughts to myself. Instead, we talk about his students, about the ones who are thriving this year, and the ones who are falling behind. Most of the teachers don't have the benefit of a second set of eyes in the classroom every day, and in the last three years I've become a keen observer of student behavior. Tad's teaching has improved dramatically as a result. The principal has no idea, of course. If the school leadership realized that Tad was still running my instance, more than three years after they put my body in the ground, they wouldn't be talking about him for Teacher of the Year status. Try Psychiatric Inmate of the Month, more likely. So I remain his little secret, a live 24-7 telepresence, stored and processed in his AR implants. In the old days, when I was alive, we would end the instance after a few minutes or an hour, and the resulting memories would be transmitted through the net back to my own implants, where they would be sideloaded to my cerebral cortex as I woke up. It wasn't as good as being there in person. There was no touching, of course. But with all the travel I did for work, it was a nice way to fill in the gaps between our in-person meetings. Now there would be no transfer if my instance ended. My memories of the last three years would go out into the ether and find no home to return to. Like a movie being turned off in mid-playback, I would simply... stop. Tad couldn't bear the thought of that. Instead, he kept me running, devoting almost the entire processing power of his implants to maintaining the instance. Our friends started to wonder why he wouldn't accept their telepresence calls anymore. His fellow teachers saw him attending every staff meeting in professional development in the flesh, and thought him eccentric or a Luddite. He told no one the truth. 
a knock sounds at the door, a few minutes before the fifth period bell. Sarah Greenlee pokes her head in. Tad? Tad looks up, smiles. I feel his heart rate go up a little. Feedback from his biomonitors processed through the implants. His skin temperature rises as well. Hey, Sarah. What can I do for you? Sarah approaches the desk, her top-knot blonde ponytail swishing behind her. I was hoping I could borrow your data logger. I've got this idea for a lab on frames of reference, and I need two kits to make it work. Oh, uh, of course. I'm happy to help. Tad goes to the storage cabinets at the back of the room. He crouches down to rummage through the cluttered mass of equipment. Sarah watches his backside with open appreciation. I can only share the sentiment. After a minute or two, he makes a sound of triumph, pulls out a box, and stands up again. Sarah carefully schools her expression back to something more work-appropriate. Thank you so much, she says, as he hands over the box with a flourish. Tad grins like a goof, which he is, but it's been a long time since I've seen that smile. No problem. Let me know how it turns out. I will. Sarah waves over her shoulder as she leaves, a sunny bounce in her step. Tad watches her go with much the same expression she directed at him a moment before. She likes you, I say, after she's gone. Sarah likes everybody, Tad says. I honestly think it's her superpower. I throw a chiding look in his direction. Not what I meant, love. Just you wait. She'll come back later looking for a way to repay you for this. Maybe drinks after work? Or dinner at her place? Tad rolls his eyes. We're in the same department, Jill. She asked me because she knows my equipment is compatible with hers. That's what I'm saying. Tad glares at me, but says nothing. It's terribly unfair that my brilliant sense of humor has such an unappreciative audience. All right, let's make a bet, I say. If I'm wrong, and she doesn't try to angle a date out of this, I'll grade all of your midterm exams for you. Tad looks up in interest, as well he might. A competent person to take over grading duties? Teachers would make a blood pact at the crossroads for a deal like that. And what if you're right, he asks. I show him my warmest, most earnest smile. You say yes. You go and have a wonderful time. I promise I'll stay out of the way. Tad's expression is torn. It's been over three years, and I know the time is worn on him even more than on me. But still, he hesitates. He sinks back down into his chair. I don't know, Jill. I crouch down beside him. It's time, Tad. It's past time. You're going to live to a hundred and fifty, maybe longer. That's a long time to be alone. I'm not alone, he says, too quickly. You know what I mean. The fifth period bell rings, and students start to filter back into the hallways, filling the school with their chatter. In moments, the first of them will walk through the door. I can't take Tad's hand, so I settle for putting mine on the armrest of his chair. Promise me, Tad, 
If she offers you a date, you'll say yes. Tad is silent for a long moment. The first students start to file in, taking their seats around the classroom. Finally, he lets out a sigh. All right, he mutters, pitching his voice so only I can hear. You're on. And that's the end of part one. Come back next time, when Tad and Sarah get to know each other a little better, and Jill makes a surprising discovery about herself. Anthony Burgess said, Language exists less to record the actual than to liberate the imagination. So shake off your chains, and let's see where my imagination has taken me this week. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 2,058 words this week, over the course of 2.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 748 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 44 days without breaking my chain. I only made a little progress this week on the writing front. We had friends over for Thanksgiving, so I spent a lot of time cooking and cleaning. I also spent a good chunk of my free time on audio production. Now that the lost in the least is complete, I had to package up the audio files and send them off to ACX for review. I also had to do some retakes for previous chapters, since I'd ended up changing Murakir's voice halfway through the story. Finally, I decided it was time to redo the covers for the Metamore City audiobooks. Starla Hutchton put together a very clean, minimalistic style for Homecoming, and I copied that style for the other books in the series. Not only do the new covers clearly show that they're all part of the same series, but they're easier to read, and they obscure much less of the cover art than the old titles. The new covers will be up on Audible by the time you hear this. When I did have time to write, I did some prep work for upcoming episode scripts, and I wrote a little bit more of my next Metamore City novel, None Shall Dwell Within. The book is now in Chapter 7, and the manuscript is a bit under 20,000 words. Over on the Patreon feed, we have a new patron this week. Say hello to the awesomely named Mithril Dragon. Carol Foote has delivered the final artwork for the holiday cards, and it's just as beautiful as I was expecting. I've ordered the cards, and they should be here by Tuesday, December 3rd. As soon as I receive them, I'll start addressing them and sending them out. If you don't have your address listed in Patreon, or you forgot to update it, send me a message ASAP in the Patreon app, or in the patrons-only chat room on the Metamore City Discord server. I want to make sure to get a card to everyone who wants one this year. If you like this show and want to help me keep making it, becoming a patron is the very best way to support me. Your monthly pledges help me plan for upcoming expenses, keep the websites and the podcast servers running, and pay for artwork, cover design, and other production costs. About 91% of what you pledge goes directly to me, and that makes it hands down the most efficient way to support my writing career. Plus, all my patrons get access to the the behind-the-episode author commentaries and cool bonus art from awesome Metamore City artists. 
To get started, go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Take a look at the donation tiers and choose the one that's right for you. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. And now, the feedback. Hi, Chris. It's Sarah Testarosa. I hope this finds you well. Calling in with some feedback for the end of The Lost in the Least. This was a super fun ride of a book, and I'm glad that I listened to the whole thing rather than reading any of it because it's just been fun getting a little bit piecemeal, but I'll definitely end up rereading it just because ah, it's really good. I really like how you ended things and wrapped up the storyline as much as it can be wrapped up in this short amount of time that you end up having at the end of the story. I'm glad that Kate finally admits aloud that she has a problem with post-traumatic stress. I am glad that her and Montgomery and David are going to be working at SIV and trying to get things better there. And, you know, we don't even know who there is still brotherhood and just didn't get caught. So that's a little bit nerve wracking. <laughs> so that was cool. And I'm interested to see what happens with Jared. I, I heard you saying in, in one of the pre-episode or post-episode that you are working on the next book and trying to figure out what happened with him in the interim since he went with um, folks with the Sly Collective. So that's definitely going to be interesting to see where he that goes. In terms of the big reveal of who the White Widow is, that was so cool. I thought it was cool how, you know, we already knew that it was Saralina going on behalf of the White Widow, but then when you reveal in the epilogue that she is the White Widow slash, you know, that's her persona. That was very cool. And also I, I was tickled by the fact that she went to Callie's summit or whatever you want to call it as herself on behalf of the White Widow with a message from the White Widow, but the White Widow is her. <laughs> I just thought that was super clever and cool. I also like that you differentiated between the White Widow persona and her kind of standard one. I mean, it makes sense. I also had a lot of mixed feelings about the fact that she had had the Brotherhood kidnap Silas. And, yeah, even though she's not happy with the fact that the Brotherhood, you know, ended up killing people that they shouldn't have in blah 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 the fact that she had them kidnap Silas is just kind of like, mm, especially because, you know, since they ended up being unethical, it's like, well, what if they had killed him or something? I don't know. But it's like, okay, you know, he's being treated well, but it is still kind of, He's in prison there, sort of, and he's basically going to be forced to work for her or or I don't know what. But I do hope that him working for her and their cause ends up going okay and he doesn't hate it too much. And hopefully she'll give him, like, actual evidence of the fact that Callie and Co. are running Kenning Security. Like, I don't know why she didn't just, like, have some sort of actual evidence, but... Maybe if she had tried to, like, kind of film the meeting or something, that would be a thing that would be prevented. I don't remember exactly whether there were, like, detectors for magic or tech or whatever. But I'm glad Silas is okay. I I was worried about him, and I was wondering. And I just was just like, you know, I'm like, let Morgan Freeman live! (laughs) Whether or not you intended him to be Morgan Freeman-esque, that's kind of how I visualized him based on your description. So Morgan Freeman with a cybernetic life. Anyway, but, yeah, so I'm glad that... He's at least being treated well there, and I'm looking forward to seeing what ends up happening there as well. 
I just, I, I'm just tickled by the fact that Seralina is the one bringing down, you know, behind the big bring down Malcolm plot. Because I have no fucking idea who it could be. You know, I really did not know. And I'm like, oh, it must be someone we've never met before or something. But no, someone we met before who has a big stake in things. So honestly, I was proud of myself for figuring out who she was when she went to Kelly's Summit. Because I, it's been a little bit since I've read Making the Cut, like maybe a couple of years by now. So, yeah, this is a great end to the story. I'm looking forward to finishing reading Homecoming, and I hope that you have a great time writing Dungeon Dwell Within. Keep it on the bright side. Bye. Thank you, Sarah. It's been really interesting watching the fans of Metamore City page and seeing folks' reactions to the White Widow's identity. Nobilis called it the perfect surprising inevitability. Gary David Henderson agreed, saying... I'm so surprised that I didn't think of that. I mean, it was kind of obvious after. A bunch of folks had guessed that Lena would be the widow's second-in-command, with Miriam Bakhtavar as the one in charge. Paul Perkins and Tina Kolakowski, though, had both successfully guessed that Lena was the one. Glenn Fitch had missed it the first time, but when he went back and listened to the three graces, he noticed that the widow's physical description closely matched the description of Lena in making the cut. But Andrew Kaufman still isn't giving up on Miriam. He says, I still think she is the true white widow, just pulling the strings from way behind the scenes. Great discussion, everyone, and I had a lot of fun hearing your thoughts on the book. Miriam will definitely have a part to play in the showdown with Malcolm, but if you want to know the details, you'll have to wait and see. I think I know how it's going to go, but Miriam has a tendency to twist the story in directions I'm not expecting every time she shows up, so I won't really know until I write it. Oh, and as to your observations about Silas, Sarah? Yeah, I could definitely see him being played by Morgan Freeman. Other actors who I think would do great with the role include Louis Gossett Jr., who plays Will Reeves on HBO's Watchmen series, and Clark Peters, who plays the master of Jordan College in His Dark Materials. Actually, given Silas's age, Peters is probably the best choice for the role. He's 67, while Gossett and Freeman are both in their 80s. Anyway, thanks for the call. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it. 
but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.